We shall now hit record. All right, we are recording. Cool. Yeah, so we're up to episode six, uh, season 11 of Mention and Dispatches. I did include the the plug last episode. want to reiterate, if you get a chance, uh, cruise on over to iTunes. The link is right here in the episode page. Uh, it, it, go throw us a rating, please. We just, we need some more ratings to start showing up. Uh, you have to have a minimum number of ratings before iTunes starts recommending you to people. You know, hey, if you like this, you might like these other things. We're just trying to get enough that that somebody's going to actually, you know, start recommending us to, to show up in those things. So if you get a chance, please go do that. Uh, all right, shameless plug over. Let's get on to tonight's thing. It was supposed to be uh, multiple guests joining us. However, some technical difficulties have, have deprived you guys of Volko joining us on the... Uh, uh, on the podcast this week. So go go yell at Volco's internet company. Uh, he's in the D.C. area, so I, I'm not sure, you know, which bad internet in the D.C. area he's got, but go go yell at them. Uh, in the meantime, though, uh, with Volco's blessing, Justin and I are going to soldier on. Justin, how are you doing these days? Uh, good, good. Uh, very busy, but it's great to be back talking to you again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you been a bit of a road warrior lately, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been crazy. I think I've cr- I crossed the Pacific twice this year in a span of uh, three and a half weeks. So, wow. I'm yeah, I'm <laughs> looking forward to being at home for the holidays. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. So uh, you probably didn't drag a whole lot of wargaming with you on the road, although it's it's entirely conceivable. But but what have you been playing lately? Yeah, well, you know, it's actually, I think it's been a really good year for war games. Uh, recently, what have I had on the table? Well, I, I played through finally um, 1812 War on the Great Lakes Frontier from Compass, okay. uh, which is a stellar game. Um, I know it's not like a topic that most people are like super into, but um, the game itself is super solid and it's beautiful. Like, I think it might be one of Compass games' like best productions and it's really fun. And uh, yeah. It's like one of those games where like you play it and you can't wait to play it again immediately when you're done. That's that's a good sign. Yep. Uh, and then the other thing I've been playing recently, uh, a game, uh, The Hunt, which was a, a crowdfunded game. Um, it's sort of a basically chase for for the Graf Spey. It's kind of like uh, I I kind of equate it to like uh, like a lightweight version of Atlantic Chase. So um, the scope is like about one ship, but it's essentially that same like hidden movement you're trying to sink british convoys um it's a card driven game but it plays in like an hour uh it's really good i was i was surprised at how good it was oh that's cool that's cool i've seen pictures of that one and people seem to be enjoying it especially like as you said it's it's fairly lightweight so you can play it rather quickly and and still get a good satisfying experience out of it um I am curious, you know, what you thought of 1812, like I wasn't planning on asking you much about it, but but dig into it a little bit for us, because because it looks gorgeous. And folks that have played it have said, you know, it's it's quite a bit of fun, but it does look a little weird. Yeah. With like, you know, all of the hexes <laughs> in the water and just sort of, oh, yeah, there's yep. some land over yeah well i actually kind of like what he did so he he basically said like there are parts of the map that you will just never play on just because of the terrain or whatever so like let's like dispense with the illusion that like there are viable routes into the great lakes region and just make some of that stuff single hex lines um and it works out because most of the action uh so the game is very heavily naval involved like uh the lake navies um and so that becomes really the focus point of a lot of uh the operational thinking that you're doing um and so it actually works really really well uh because the the high it highlights the hot spots of the action in the ways that they historically would develop and would have developed anyways even if there was like extra playable space um so i think it's actually a pretty pretty good sort of elegant solution to some of that stuff you know a lot of war games you get like a whole map but then you end up playing on like 40 percent of it yeah. um 
but it's it's a really great game. Um, it's a, it's a card driven game. Um, but unlike most card driven games, the game actually you you actually get the ops and the event when you play your cards. Um, so there's a whole lot of hand management going on with what card you play when and how. And there's this whole mechanic where once per turn, basically once per hand of cards, each player gets the ability to cancel one event that the opponent plays. So you're kind constantly playing around this threat of having some of your good events be canceled and you're trying to bait out the cancel before the opponent can do it. Uh, and then it's heavily asymmetric as well. So like the British and the uh, American like supply line mechanics are completely different. The force composition uh, starts heavily in favor of the British, but over time the Americans start to build up and then all of a sudden you start to get some of the big, uh, the bigger ships that, you know, took part in the battles on Lake Erie and Lake Ontario and Lake Champlain. And that kind of changes the complexion of the game in the late game. And, you know, there's, it's just really, really like, it feels very developed. It, it feels very tight. Um, there's, you know, every card play is agonizing and like, is a meaningful decision. And it just feels like a really like meaty fun game to sink your teeth into without being super complex. And there's some fairly unique stuff to CDGs um, like mechanically where the ground units can um, like board and assault ships if they're in like a river hex, you know, and you approach from the shore and stuff like that. So it's, it's really got a great, like a uh, war of 1812 feel to it um and the events are very evocative it's just all around a very like great design game all right we got to stop talking about it or i'm gonna end up ordering it before we're done recording <laughs> well sales sales should be coming soon right the compass catalog has has started to arrive for people so yeah there's uh there's either that or i'll find somebody that i know that's going to compass expo and just have them pick it up there for me at 50 percent off and bring it home so there you go well, well worth it highly recommended for me yeah and and that's not usually an era that i tend to pay a whole lot of attention to uh it, the, the joke is like there's no tanks in the war of 1812 so <laughs> <laughs> you know you know what's weird it's though not entirely fair <laughs> well, yeah. that is a reputation yeah. that i have and and i lean into it on occasion <laughs> so, so actually you know one of the things i think is really cool about that era so i was in boston recently speaking of travel where i was and i actually um for the first time visited the uss constitution um which is the oldest commission the oldest floating ship in the world that still functions and it's the oldest commissioned naval ship right in in the u.s navy and like having just played 1812 or in the great lakes frontier where the uss constitution plays a huge role in many of the like sort of offboard events in that game getting to go then stand on it knowing that that ship was built you know 200 and some years ago um was awesome like it was like it 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 really brought home sort of like the entire like 1812 experience i had had over like a three-week period um so i highly recommend if you're ever in the boston area to go check it out um you know all the 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 crew are uh, commission um our naval um personnel uh, in the u.s military which is yeah so i just i imagine like what what fun it must be to be posted on the uss constitution because essentially you're a a curator of a floating museum uh and it was pretty fun to watch them all line up for lunch uh lunch hour and stuff (laughs) i uh the spring break of 91 i i (laughs) my my dad was stationed in oklahoma i really wasn't looking forward to going back to oklahoma it's like (laughs) yay dad i'm glad you just got back from gulf one uh, you know, appreciate you being a war hero and all. I really don't want to come to Oklahoma because, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'd been there for two years already finishing out high school. I'm like, I'm good. Um, and, and it turned out that we had a really good family friend who was living in Boston. The Army had sent him to grad school in Boston. So I, I rang him up. I'm like, hey, how about I catch a train up and uh, let's hang out. You can show me around your hometown some. And and it worked out that that was his spring break also while he was in grad school. And, and so I caught the train up and I had a Boston native showing me around town for a couple of days. And the USS Constitution was one of the things that we went to. And, and so you're right. It is a fabulously cool experience if you ever get the chance to do it so so listeners that's two big votes up for go see the uss constitution when you get a chance 
<laughs> the uh, the other thing I remember about the trip to the USS Constitution, and and I don't know if it's moored in the same place for you where it was for me, because I know that they they had moved it because they had done some refurbishing and some some uh, some maintenance on it, and and so it was not available for public display for like three years, and then they they moved it back into Boston. Uh, when I saw it in '91, if you're if you're standing looking at the ship and you make a 180 degree turn, there was this uh, this giant food hall market thing across the parking lot right behind the USS Constitution. And there was a bakery in there that had some fabulous French pastries as, as good or better than some of the stuff that I'd gotten in France over the years. So that's the other thing I remember about the trip to the Constitution. It's a really cool museum. Talking to the Navy dudes on there, you could feel the enthusiasm just, you know, flowing out of these guys. Um, and then afterwards, we got really good dessert across the parking lot. <laughs> I was really impressed with Boston's pastry offering. I don't know if it's in the same spot. I know now it's at the Charleston Naval Yard, which is itself now a museum as well. So okay. There's a lot of cool stuff in that area to just kind of get your American history kick. Yeah, we uh, look, we we did, you know, we drove out to Lexington and Concord and did all the uh, all the usual touristy stuff that, that you sort of have to do when you, you know, you don't know if you're ever going to get another trip to Boston. So we, we hit all the requirements. Uh, but along the way, um, you know, the Constitution's one of those. It's it's definitely a requirement and folks should absolutely go check it out. So, yeah, totally agree. Boston's one of those places where, like, you really feel the history of America. There's very few places in America, like outside the Northeast where you get that or the East Coast. But uh, while I was there, I just randomly parked like because I was trying to find parking to walk around Cambridge. And I just happened to park like not even planning on it in front of the tree where George Washington took control to command of the uh, Continental Army in 1775. Oh, wow. And it's just where else can you get where else can you get that? You know, there's like a big plaque yeah. there and some of the cannons that were taken from the British uh, like are, are there in the park right near the tree. So it's just it, I love the, the vibe there. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. Totally agree. All right. Uh, I don't know that the listeners intended to tune in for a Boston travelogue, but what the heck. Uh, Old Earth Church. Cool to see. Uh, was underwhelmed with the Bull and Finch pub, which is the one that Cheers is based on. Uh, it, it, it was it, that was a little underwhelming to me. Uh, but a lot of the rest of it, like you said, it's just, you know, you, you can really feel the that colonial spirit all over the place we're gonna go a little further back in time pre-us for tonight's discussion so the the reason we were hoping volco was going to be able to join us also the plan tonight was to talk about the levy and campaign system and talk to the godfather of the system about sort of where did this come from how did you conceptualize a, a lot of what developed in this system that said you're here because you've designed one of the games in the levy and campaign system as well so we're gonna lean a little heavier on your design experience um, for the folks that don't know as much about the system and and not not just what it covers, right? It's medieval warfare. Okay, got it. But but kind of what it's where it's focused and what it's intending to model and how that impacts what you're doing with the design. So so as a system as a whole, give our listeners sort of the the thumbnail one over the world view of what's the system doing, and then we'll dig into your specific game. Yeah, yeah. So the Levine campaign system, like you said, is a uh, medieval air. Well, it's it's started as a as a medieval um, specific operational war game system so there's that's a that's sort of a spot where there's very little in the war game space um, and I think probably for good reason um, but it, you know you usually get a lot of medieval battle games or a lot of strategic level medieval games, but there's very little in the way of like military operational games. And so uh, Volko designed the system to sort of um, bring forth and evoke the challenges and decision process around medieval armies, 
maneuvering them, uh, the logistical considerations of having them in the field, um, and sort of the key sort of innovative thing about living campaign with, with Nevsky was, uh, well, two things really. It was, you know, how does weather affect the movement and operation of a medieval army, right? Um, they yeah. didn't have vehicles, right? And so a lot of a lot of Nevsky is about managing the various types of transport you need to carry the supplies that your armies need to fight effectively, um, which is one part of the puzzle. But the other part of it is, um, you know, in the medieval era, especially in Western Europe, um, the feudal obligation uh, of lords and soldiers to fight in an army. You know, typically it was for a 40-day contract period in which they would be away from home, they would be fighting, and when that 40 days was over, the lord and his men would go home, tend to their fields or, you know, whatever. And so that's the other sort of friction to the system is that you're balancing the logistical, like, military stuff about your armies, but you're also having to, you know, deal with this sort of imminent uh like retreat from the field of your of your vassals and your and your lords that are in your army because you know they're only obligated to serve for a certain amount of time so if you don't achieve your goals you know in in a timely fashion then suddenly your army starts to disintegrate and so those are sort of the two driving factors of of each of, of the players playing the system and each game um beginning with nevsky and, and moving forward has kind of taken those those are the two elements that are sort of at the core of the gameplay the two sort of things that players have to in order to play well have to get good at doing and i as far as i like if anything i've ever played and what really drew me to the system personally when nevsky came out at the tail end of 2019 beginning of 2020 was just how unique it was right i mean it was that sort of like flash in the pan moment of oh my god i've never had to like engage my thinking this way in sort of a competitive two-player strategic military um type of exercise and and um and so that's kind of what the system has brought um in addition to uh sort of tackling very much lesser known time period settings conflicts um with you know what it's doing i mean nevsky you know nevsky is famous in certain circles especially in russia and eastern europe but like how many of us in the west knew about the teutons and the the uh the rus in the uh, 13th century i know i knew nothing about it before i bought the game there's probably more than you would think among the role players just <laughs> because all of us history nerds like looking for some cool new way to describe our you know our, our murder hobos would start you know looking through a variety of historical books just to see what was out there and and after a while th- there's only so many franco-germanic anglo-saxon type knights on a quest that you can do and you start casting your eye a little further afield so so eventually you sort of uh stray over into Eastern Europe, but but one of the challenges, as you would expect, you know, the the sourcing is pretty difficult because there's not a lot of English language sourcing there. So you're stuck having to read some bad translations or you know stories about stories about what's going on there, and that that gets that gets hard. Uh, there's only so much you can do with that. Uh, so so. Some of us knew about a little bit of it, but not not much. You're right. There there wasn't near as much there as you would think. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, there was the the, the movie I think from the 20s, right? That sort of you know was popularized him as a figure in in the West a little bit, but. Uh, I know that there's a, a couple of comic books that take place during that period as well. But um, like, you know, other than that, like you'd have to be a pretty big history aficionado to, to get into that. And I the series has kind of followed that route. I mean, the 11th century period of the Reconquista in Spain, you know, the low the low hanging fruit for the Reconquista is sort of like the final, um, you know, the Isabella and Ferdinand, sort of the final years of that conflict. But to like go back to sort of like the middle of it with El Cid and stuff like that yeah. is um was was also kind of novel right for for the second entry yeah yeah totally you 
mentioned the idea of you've only got your troops for a certain amount of time because there's there are are limits to their obligation to you. You you have your vassals, but it's not just an unlimited recall. Come fight with me, and you're stuck with me until I send you home. There's you know the as the commander you have to recognize that they have other obligations that you've got to allow them to fulfill. And and I think that's one of the neat things about the system is the way that it does, uh, the way that it does acknowledge that and sort of force you to have to deal with it. So your, your va- and, and I've played, I played Nevsky a couple of times. I haven't played any of the other series, uh, other games in the series. Uh, one of our guys here locally that comes to our Triangle War Game Day pretty regularly uh, will bring Nevsky along. And so we've, we've played a couple of those. The, or I've played that one a couple of times, not a couple of those. It's the same one. Uh, <laughs> but in in terms of when you first got your hooks into how how you had the the personnel management, like leaving aside the logistics management piece, because you're right, that's that's another really big issue. But just the personnel management of who do I have, when do I get them, how long do I have them, what do I do when they're gone? How how did that strike you? How what, what was your first impression of that, and how have you sort of learned to manage through that a little bit? Yeah, well, so I can tell you right now, the very first game of Nevsky that I played with my main wargaming partner, well, it was a complete disaster. We both were just like bumbling through, like we had never had to confront the idea that your army just goes home at a, or portions of your army go home at a certain point. And uh, I remember, I think our first game ended when, uh, I can't remember who it was, but one of us, we basically just like moved the turn marker forward and realized, oh, everyone who's fighting for me is actually done. They're going home. And then you lose the game if you have nobody on the map, right? If your entire army goes home. (laughs) And it was at that moment we were like, wow, you know, I've, I've learned some real valuable lessons from this failure. Um, and so we played it again a couple days later and it went much better. And I think that was one of the things that I really liked about it was that it's one of those games um, where it was unfamiliar. Uh, you know, you can like you when you play enough war games, you start to speak the language of different genres pretty easily. So you can look at a Hex Encounter World War II game and be like, I kind of generally know how this is going to work and what I have to do and the challenges that are, you know, I'm facing as a player. And in, in Levy and Campaign, when I first played it, none of that was true. It was like learning a whole new language uh, and learning how to like, you know, do things in the game that you would never a, either be able to do or think to do in other games because of the, the toolbox that you have with the game system. And uh, and that was, it just revealed layers, you know, as, as I played it, I played, I think, like three or four times in the span of like two weeks with the same opponent. And we got really, we, we were really engaged by the challenges that it was presenting. And so like, as we were playing every session, we would get better and we would do things better. We would find, we would see something that we didn't see in the other games. Like, oh, you know, this is a really good way to, to you know, be good at the game to do this. Um, and, you know, we, we things like, okay, so you you, you got to look like several turns in advance. It's not just about the, the the turn that you're playing, but it's like, you know, you have a situation where like your army is going to run out of supplies and that's going to mean that their service expires and that they go home, but they're like in a critical part of the map that you really need to hold. So even though you could maybe go attack an enemy army and defeat them, that won't necessarily give you anything, but you could also just sit around and besiege like this castle. And if you manage to succeed at besieging this castle before the end of the, the season, um, you'll get some, you'll be able to pillage the castle of its rewards and supplies and you can keep that army fighting for another turn and so like those were the types of decisions that started to bubble up and 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 inflection points to the game that started to bubble up and surface um as we played more games and it just i don't know i just once you sort of like see the code of the matrix it like it was it was so enthralling and it hooked me and i i know i've talked to a lot of other people especially because i've demoed my game uh, quite a bit who you know are learning the system or are getting to grips with it and it's like everyone has that moment whether it's that first game or whether it's that fifth game whatever it is where they started suddenly can like see beyond what the 
the board is showing and kind of see how to play well. And it's like so rewarding to have that. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, you, you mentioned early on the logistics piece and sort of circling back around to that, the idea that it, it's, you have to put some consideration both into the quantity of your supplies. And one thing that I think is really neat, it's it's one of the few games to address it, it in any historical era, the, the means by which you transport those supplies, because being able to transport over water doesn't help you if there's no water nearby for you to unload them. Uh, winter tends to screw with people. It's hard to move stuff around in the winter in a pre-mechanized society. So the idea of sleds versus wagons versus boats and how much you can carry and what kinds of quantities. Um, talk to us a little bit about your, your impressions of that logistics system as it exists in Nevsky. Cause like winter sleds a little less useful in some of the other games. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's not just like, you know, having four different types. It's that like some of the types turn into other types, right? So like when the seasons change, I, I would say of the whole series, the, the weather in Nevsky is like the big, that's the game where the weather plays the biggest role which makes sense given where it is in sort of northeast europe um but that is you know that one is the most unforgiving in terms of lack of planning you know i I go back to you you mentioned sailing and and bringing supplies with you i go back to the first game i played um the the teutonic side they have these this danish these two danish brothers who are an army that you can put on the muster to the board and they have the ability to sail from denmark all the way like bypassing a huge swath of estonia right into russia um towards novgorod and uh you're like oh well that's the low-hanging fruit you just do that and suddenly there's an enemy army in, in you know, my opponent's territory and they're going to have to deal with that. And so I made that move. And then as soon as I landed them on the shores, I realized, oh, I forgot to bring the stuff to carry all the food I shoved aboard these boats. And now yeah. I, I basically wasted it. I can't carry it anymore. And so what I, what I think is so smart about the supply side of it is like the game makes it so you can't do game, like you can't really do gamey things. So like as war gamers, we just want to squeeze the most, like the blood out of a stone with any mechanic to make it to our advantage. And like, you know, there's limits on how much you can carry with any given army based on how much transport you have. And that transport you can only get once a turn. And so like it, it breaks down the sort of like min maxing that war gamers tend to get into with yeah. sort of a, a general fog of war in every phase of the turn so whether it's you know planning for the next turn knowing that weather is changing and that's going to completely muck up all the stuff that you've got currently on the board and you need to figure out a way to mitigate that before the weather arrives versus um or or even going so far as like in the activation system which is a pre-programmed turns right so you decide the order that all of your armies get to do things with before the turn even begins secretly and your opponent is also doing that and so whatever plan you have whatever plan they have that old sort of like uh like uh you know the old uh axiom that plans don't survive first contact with the enemy sometimes plans don't even survive first contact with the player in this game which makes all these like emergent moments happen and like you get this like really rich narrative uh, of of what medieval the challenges and and failings that actual medieval armies faced and i think that's the other thing here is that all of these mechanics are and Volko's big on modeling he'd be the one to tell you that like modeling is so important but like they model all the things that can happen in Levian campaign model the types of things you read about in the actual histories of medieval campaigning and that's where i think the system is like a great window into history and into the decision space of those historical people because you get the exact same types of events failure successes wild swings of fate all of that stuff happening in the game system that you could then turn around and go read about in whatever campaign that interests you from the medieval period yeah 
as as you look at the series as a whole, of which you are a contributor, aside from the original and yours, which of the other games in the series have you played, and what did you think of them? Um, so I've played a little bit of uh, the only one I think I so I have not played Almoravid, although I'm very familiar with the rules because when I started designing my game, I used Almoravid's rules as sort of a starting template for some of the right. stuff that I wanted to include in mine. There's a lot of similarities there, in both geographically, but also uh, temporally as well, so it made sense to kind of adopt some of that stuff. Um, and I've played a little bit of Inferno, mostly demo sessions. I haven't played the the full like thing yet. Um, that Inferno is fun because it's uh, you talk about wild swings. Inferno is it's like a um, knife fight in a circus. Uh, everything you do in that game causes cities or lords to like switch sides and rebel against you, and like there's it's just chaos, a uh, really fun chaos. But uh, you know, representing sort of the politics and wishy washiness of of uh, medieval Italy, Tuscany. Um, and then uh, the newest one, which just came out, is uh, Plantagenet. Uh, that one I have actually not played. Um, and that one's a, a lot different from some of the other Levy and Campaign games. It's adding a lot of stuff. What's interesting about Plantagenet is that most of the games before that took place over a, a two-year period. So uh, the full campaign would be a, a span of two years. Plantagenet um, covers different campaigns during the Wars of the Roses in different time periods that sometimes are very far apart. Um, and it's more about influence, which is like a new concept, than it is necessarily about conquering um, or fighting necessarily. Um, and so, as we're as more entries in the system come out, you're starting to see sort of like coin before it designers with interesting ideas pushing against sort of you know the 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 framework that Volko created with the with the core rules and Nevsky. Yeah, yeah, and and I think we're up to are we up to seven yet? I think we're up to seven. I I'd, I'd have to you know, like open GMT's website and look at them all. The- I think we've got, I think we've got eight. So the, the ones that uh, have not been released yet, we've got Seljuk, which is mine. That's going to be volume five. Volume six, I believe is going to be Henry, which is being designed by Joe Schmidt. That one's um, about the Agincourt campaign in France during the hundred years war. And is going to be a lot smaller in scope because um, he excels at kind of that, that design, that minimalist kind of design. And um, I've played that, a few, or I played early versions of that and it, it was, it looked really promising. Uh, and then Zizka, um, which is Hussite Bohemia, um, that one got added to P500 at GMT earlier this year. Um, that one should be really fun. Again, another topic that like a lot of people don't know about, like Central European medieval conflict with, between Poland. And then uh, just recently, I believe last month or two months ago, um, is the first Living Campaign game. I guess technically it's not Volume Eight; it's a Volume One of a new series. But it's sort of a it's the Athenian expedition to Sicily um, in the fourth century BC, I believe. It's called the Pipolae. Um, and that one I played at uh, SD Hiscon last year. And that one is also sort of smaller in scope, but is like really tight and really fun. And the designer of that one, Jason Winter, um, he is, uh, he has got a lot of, uh, or Jason, I might get his, might be getting his last name wrong. Um, it, I apologize if that's the case. But anyways, the game is really tight and really fun. And I played uh, a scenario of that at SD Hiscon last year. And that one's going to be really great too. It's added, sort of bringing the ancient flavor of um, what levying and campaigning, you know, was like in a pre-medieval period, um, sort of in the confines of levying campaign as a system. And I think what it's showing is that levying campaign is actually very versatile in terms of the abstractions it's making are still very believable things and could be ascribed to a number of different um, challenges and types of logistic decision making that you find through many different eras um the actually the discord the designer discord uh for levying campaign has been full in the couple of years that i've been a part of it every now and again we get discussions about
about what other hypothetical uh, like eras could Levian campaign apply to because these mechanics are so um, reflective of that stuff. And it's everything from ancients to uh, 30 years war and like everything in between. Um, and so it's it's a lot of fun to think about where it could go. Yeah. It, it, look, nobody thought coin was going to space until Red Dust Rebellion showed up. So <laughs> exactly. With with your specific contribution to the series, um, what'd you do? Why'd you do it? How'd you do it? <laughs> well, um, it, it all comes back to those early failed failed attempts at playing Nevsky. Um, so while I was uh, while I was it was getting its hooks into me, while Livian campaign was sort of like you know, just kind of lighting up my brain. Um, I also happened to be deep into the history of Byzantium podcast um, and had been for about a year at that point. Mm-hmm. And there was just this crazy overlap where um, the episode that that podcast did, which was like an hour and a half about the the Battle of Manzikert and sort of all the things that led up to the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. And my understanding of medieval campaigning through playing Nevsky and the model that it was doing kind of slammed into each other with like this light bulb moment while I was driving to work one day. And I remember thinking, wow, I could this system would be so perfect for all of the history that we have around sort of the approach to the Battle of Manzikert and the Battle of Manzikert itself. And so I kind of put quickly put together like a one page design document where I kind of sketched out, okay, what mechanics would we keep or would there be new mechanics needed based on the history? And then that kind of turned into a much more fully fledged, like creating a timeline of events and the specific characters, lords that we would need, that would be needed for the game. And I was just kind of, it was a thought exercise. I didn't really intend for it to be, um, you know, a game that I would start making. Um, but then I, I showed it to Volko and Volko was like, yeah, you should, you should do it. You should give it a shot. And so I guess, you know, that was, that broke the floodgates and I started working on um, the game, um, doing a lot of research. I own now probably like 20 books on um, Eastern Roman slash Byzantine history um, and a few more on uh, early Turkish history. Um, and it was, you know, I spent just several months reading as much as I could get my hands on listening to the podcast again. Um, and figuring out a way to bring all of that, you know, real world information we have together with the game system. And so I created a map and I, you know, just started kind of just throwing stuff into, uh, onto paper and created a prototype. Um, and I took it to GMT later that year, uh, for their weekend at the warehouse. That was what, October 20, October 20, 2021, I guess, because I started in 2020 and I had a prototype and I'd been playing it locally when COVID allowed. But 2021 was, I think, the first weekend at the warehouse that I went to after COVID. And from there, it just kind of, you know, I kept showing up with it, kept iterating on it. People wanted to play it and people liked it. And uh, and that's kind of how it ended up getting officially part of the um, the P500 um, as and and on what was going on behind the scenes while I was doing that, where there were a bunch of other designers who had great ideas and were working on games in the system and eras of history that they found interesting. You know, all these people who were you know history fans of specific time periods were like, "Wow, this system is so versatile; it could do so much." And so there was a huge community community of people sharing ideas and and creating prototypes and um that's how now why we're eight games deep in the Levian campaign because what you weren't seeing over the past three years was uh designers working at you know adapting it to to other things well and i think not just that this one seemed to have exploded much quicker than the coin series did you know when when volko designed ending abyss and folks looked at it and thought hey mechanically this is pretty cool we can do other other game you know other uh scenarios with this other conflicts uh the 
Cuba Libre came out pretty quick after that. But again, that was still Volko driving the train. And then uh, he and Brian, you know, with a distant plane. And then he and Mark with uh, Fire in the Lake. Those those both took a little longer, the lag between Andy and Abyss. And when those started showing up, it, it was, you know, five or six year period in there. Whereas with Levy and Campaign, those all seemed to pop out. I mean, we're we're not even five years into the history of Levy and Campaign. We're just barely getting to it. And, and we're already up to what the coin series took 10 years to get to. Wow. And I, I'm, I don't know how much of that is just, oh, Volko's got a really cool system here. Let's run with it. Or was Levy and Campaign a little more naturally suited to expanding much quicker than coin did? Or if people are just more used to series games at this point? I'm not really yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's a little bit of everything. I, so for one, I think, well, so Levy and Campaign, when Volko concepted the series, um, according to him, he kind of had this idea of, you know, four games, four corners of Europe. Um, and, you know, when, when he was coming up with the system, he was like, this will be more than one game, um, as I guess he is wont to do. But I think also, you know, seeing what happened with Coin um, and how his idea took flight so broadly with so many people, both designers and players, yeah. I think there was a model there, a template for how you could systemize a game um, about something that was really obscure. I mean, Indian Abyss was like, when that came out uh, in... 2012 2011 whatever it was who was was making games 2010 was when the the prototypes were showing up yeah i think it was published right at the end of 2010 early 2011 because the first time we saw the prototype was at connections at the national defense university that summer and it was while the company i was working with was there on a contract to do a game on a strategic level counterinsurgency in columbia and then volko walks in with andy and abyss hey i got this design (laughs) i've been working on we're like god damn it And well, as, as yeah, he just shows up like in a flurry of genius, right? yeah, and, like yeah, out there. around the exact yeah. scenario that we're building for NDU. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> And, but like you know, so that makes sense to like for for that. But like, who would have predicted that that topic or that style of game would have become like a mass crossover appeal hit, right? Like, oh, I don't God. think anyone would have predicted that, you know. No, no, definitely not. And and in our case, like I'm sort of poo pooing it a little bit. Like we were working for uh, NDU for the the International Counterterrorism Fellows Program was the the thing that we were we were supporting, and it was a strategic level counterinsurgency game. I've I've talked about Gemstone before. People have heard this plenty. Um, it just it just so happened that that year the scenario they were working with was Colombia. the The next year we did the Philippines. Uh, no, the net yeah. The next year we did the Philippines. The year after that we were working on Thailand, and and so it just so happened that that year was Colombia. It just so happened that Volca was working on Andy and Abyss at the time. We're like, geez, man, <laughs> way to steal our thunder. <laughs> yeah, I, Andy and Abyss would not have worked for the the way the class was constructed and the types of things they were trying to do with. What we were building i just happen to remember the time very well because of that overlap. yeah so that's yeah totally that's in my head <laughs> and and it's you know it's, it's even funny it's like you know uh that game becoming a hit that game was actually my gateway into war games was like seeing a video about it and being like what a weird ass topic for a board game uh, but i was curious and um and you know by that point by the time i had been exposed to it you already had two more volumes as you were saying it like took some time to get going but like i think that seeing that happen in the early 20 teens and then like having a new system there was already some probably some confidence there that like if it can find and carve out its own player audience that you could easily take that template and do it again and i think according to volko you know he already had like two or three games 
concepted, if not already in the design stage by the time Nevsky released. And it was only because of COVID that they didn't come quicker. So like the, the amount of time between Nevsky and Almoravid was longer than it was supposed to have been because of all the supply chain impacts and, and COVID oh, yeah. and all of that stuff. So, you know, it was... I think originally Almoravid was supposed to come out like the next year and that was supposed to be followed up, uh, you know, with another game. And and then they all kind of came really close together once that all got sorted out. So I think what you're seeing now is the pace um, of what is possible given how many designers have jumped aboard and how many players are discovering the system. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and not not in a bad way at all. The 11th season of the Armchair Dragoons podcast mentioned in Dispatches is graciously supported by all of our Patreon supporters who pledged at the top level. A huge thank you to Chet Bell, Hellcat6, Patrick Geraghty, Fred Stogg and his walking companion, Mike Quigley, Joseph Knorr, Trep Corey, Stagger Wing, Mark Talk and Kevin Bertram for their support of the Armchair Dragoons, which helps us bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. As you look at your design and, and where you've taken the original levy and campaign mechanics and applied them to Byzantium, what are some of the, the key places where you made changes versus things you absolutely didn't want to touch? Obviously, there are logistical considerations, but they are different in in, in the conflict that you're modeling. The, the terms of the recall of the vassals may be different in the way you're modeling it. The structures of the forces themselves may be different. Obviously, some of the combat cards and some of the combat mechanics are going to be tweaked to support what you've done. What are some of the changes that you made in, in any of those mechanics? Pick which one you want to tackle first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think the most important part here is that decision about what to touch and what not to touch um, is an interesting one, as, especially as a first-time designer. I didn't want to come in and try and read the wheel what already existed there with Volca was so solid and the actual history of of what the game covers and real quick seljuk byzantium besieged covers the four-year period uh 1068 to 1071 1068 january 1st is when the emperor romanos theogenes took power uh, in byzantium 1071 is the, uh, the in august is when the battle of manzikert happened and the byzantines were basically routed and um, be very critical for losing Anatolia to the Turks. So I, that bookend there of events was like a perfect thing for the game. And so um, I didn't want to mess with a lot of the core stuff that worked really well already, right? Like I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel with um, any of the core systems. What I tried to do was add on to some of the core systems where it made sense to reflect the history. And I think the biggest thing um, conceptually compared to something like Nevsky or Inferno um, is those games you've got fairly um, equivalent forces fighting against one another, and, and for the most part, um, there's not uh, there's not a lot of um, there's a lot of parity between them. You know, knights versus knights, or knights versus armored soldiers, and in Inferno, it's Tuscans versus Tuscans. So a lot of the force makeup and a lot of the the people involved are using the same technologies and the same military doctrine and, and all of that stuff. Whereas the conflict in Seljuk is wildly asymmetric um you've got this sort of um established long-term medieval empire that traces its roots all the way back to ancient rome and as much as society has changed and and technology has changed over the years they are still you know 
kind of similar to the Roman Empire. They've got an emperor. Um, it's an autocratic society. The, the country is closer to a nation state than a feudal realm because they've got a central government in Constantinople and they've got officials who work as part of the bureaucracy out in the provinces and the military is organized in such a way that it's top down, right? Like you would see. So the idea that there would be 40 days of service um, like there would be in Western Europe didn't, it was not true. Um, so, uh, and then against them, you've got the Seljuks who are a partially nomadic pastoral, you know, lightly armored warrior cast of, of, of soldiers, primarily who fight on horseback, primarily who use archery and don't, are not sort of organized in a way to do close combat in the way that Europeans, armored European men at arms would be. Um, and then all of, and then that's part of it. And then the other part of it is like this, the military, um, the military elite of the Muslim world who, you know, have been, uh, who have seized political power in the Middle East at this time and who are on sort of on the rise and, and sort of trying to um, establish themselves, not necessarily through conquest, but through religious and cultural expansion. Um, yeah. These two powers coming into conflict against one another, um, that makes a very different game, right? So, uh, and, and a very different feel. And so one of my main objectives going in was I wanted to change the paradigm of how each side played their faction. So in Nevsky, both sides, and Inferno too, to some extent, um, the other volumes as well, both sides score their points in the same ways. You you ravage, you conquer strongholds, and um, and there are other ways to get points as well, and so uh, unique to each game. Um, and it was not going to be like that if I wanted to model the conflict correctly. So I, from the very beginning wanted to make sure that there was a strong asymmetry and so part of that is expressed in the way that both sides score points for the eastern romans i i kept it pretty close to what you see in other levian campaign games they get points for taking control of strongholds for ravaging um and then they've got a couple other special mechanics to their their faction that can get them points so there's this idea that you know the roman emperor is the one commanding the military and especially at this period romanos was specifically crowned emperor because he was a military commander that that's what the empire needed to stop these incursions and so there's this mechanic where um, you can place an objective somewhere on the map. It could be a location or it could be an enemy lord. And if you're able to successfully seize that objective or knock out that enemy lord from the fight, you can score victory points that way. Um, but you're typically only able to do that once a year, um, the way that the game works out. And so um, you kind of telegraph uh, what you're going to be trying to do to the opposing player. Um, but you can kind of, there's ways to game it where like you can place it on a spot that's really vulnerable and then go take it. And then it's kind of like, Oh, the emperor, of course that was easy, but like the emperor is going to come back to the capital and be like the propaganda machine is going to start and be like, look what I accomplished. You know, we achieved our goal. Um, so very similar to other Levian campaign games, the Eastern Romans are going to score, but for the Seljuks, it was going to be completely different, right? They were not on a war of conquest. They were not trying to take land necessarily. What they were really actually trying to do was, um, uh, influence so they were sunni muslim and the caliphate in egypt was shia muslim and so there's a lot of conflict ideological conflict there and so what the turks were trying to do was establish sunni control over some of the the areas close to to egypt and it just so happened that the eastern roman empire was kind of in the way you know um yeah, and so yeah. the the Seljuks were not trying to conquer eastern rome but it you know all of that conflict and and sort of the um the sort of intermingling of all that stuff caused there to be uh, some you know some major battles and and so the seljuks what they're trying to do is they're because their sort of like interior political situation is part nomadic and part 
established, you know, Muslim world is there was like this loose confederation of like, if you fight for us, you know, the Sultan would go into and say, if you fight for us and take your herds and your, your warriors to the West and get them out of our territory, because you're eating up all of our grassland, um, you know, you can pillage and conquer and, and there's riches out there and you can settle it. And I bequeath that, you know, that opportunity to you. So the Seljuks are going to score points for, um, they're not going to score points for taking over for strongholds. They can still do that. And there's reasons they may, they want to, but they don't score points for it like you would in another levian campaign game they're going to score points mainly through ravaging um but also at the end of the year you don't actually play through winter in seljuk winter serves as kind of like an end of year interface that kind of resets for the next year's campaigning um that is both because historically there wasn't a lot of campaigning in winter but also because it was like a nice way to get the four years condensed into a playable thing that you could do in one sitting one long sitting um, yeah. And so the Seljuks are trying to take the loot that they get from doing all of that ravaging and pillaging and bring it home in the winter. And if they can do that, it's sort of seen as like fulfilling the, pro- the Sultan's promise that there are rich lands to the West that they these sort of nomadic uh, tribes can go and settle and, and take from. And so what the pressure that drives them to do that is at the end of every year, if they don't meet a certain criteria, a number of spaces that they have destroyed, conquered, ravaged, whatever, um, if they miss the goal that is that is set for them, then they lose points equal to the difference. So there's this constant pressure every year that gets larger and larger over the course of the campaign game where the Seljuks have to make more progress. They have to strike deeper into the heart of the Roman Empire. They have to raid more aggressively, potentially when it's not as optimal for them as it might be. Um, and so those points, that loot that they get home will score them extra points at the end of the year if they manage to do it. And so this tension of like the, the Eastern Romans trying to hold land that they control and build a buffer state between the Seljuks and the Seljuks trying to drive the spear as deep as they can and then get home without getting caught is sort of like the central tension to the game that I think plays a lot differently than other Levian campaigns games yeah yeah i think the idea of of winter as sort of a pause like it's sort of a built-in propaganda card for folks that know the coin series uh i I think that's interesting because that not a lot happened in winter in in pre-modern warfare uh you know occasionally Mm -hmm. you you get a shootout but everybody's kind of finding a fire and warming up wherever they can uh there's just in 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 a pre-industrial agrarian society you just lack the logistics to keep fighting through winter as much exactly there's no way to feed the army exactly so you have to disperse them so that 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 definitely strikes me as uh as very realistic there yeah and also i mean the thing with winter too is like you're talking about the terrain of central turkey um i don't think people realize how high elevation some of that stuff is i actually went to turkey last year um as a vacation but also got to visit some of the places that were important to the game and then got to do some historical research on the ground there which is really fun but you don't i don't think anyone really realizes what that terrain is like so like i was in central turkey which is just an arid highland desert basically hardly any water nothing really grows uh it is like really unforgiving and in winter it gets super cold and then the further east you go, you start to run into the Caucasus and the you know the mountains in eastern Turkey and Armenia, and those can those climb. I mean, that's where Mount Ararat is, right? Which I think is something like yeah. you know five thousand meters or maybe more. Um, and it's super high elevation, really craggy, really rough terrain, and there's just not a lot you can do in in winter in places like that, you know. So a lot of the time, the campaigns would just kind of close up shop and head home and come back in the spring when the snow had melted. Yeah, and 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 hopefully you miss the mud as a part of all that. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, there, there's no mud in Seljuk, thankfully. And this is where like looking at uh, an Almoravid, right, was really uh, helpful because Spain and Turkey are at the same latitude, very roughly kind of the similar land area and similar terrain. Um, and so it was helpful to see how Volko had modeled some of the uh, how weather was not as important in Spain, you know, and and how the terrain would affect operations and stuff. So there's a lot to, you know, a lot of uh, analog- analogous uh, conditions there. Ah. Ah. 
So as you developed the game from, hey, I've got this idea through actually putting it together on the map and then refining it over time, what is something that has changed dramatically from the way you first envisioned it to where it actually ended up in the box at the end of it all? Yeah, well, so I, I will say we're still we're still working on some just some final stuff for the game. We're doing some final play testing to make sure that it feels balanced and everything. I don't think there's going to be any more mechanical changes uh, necessarily, but there's definitely been a lot of card um, alterations and stuff to make sure it's right. Um, so we're basically there, but there still might be some stuff that can change. To answer your question, I think um, the biggest thing that changed, I think, so coming back to a comment you made earlier, which is in the medieval era, the historical sources are, are really thin, you know, Um I think the thing that changed the most was my initial sketch for um, uh, for some of the history um, was expanded as I got into as I dug into a lot more obscure sources. And there are a lot of Arab sources that have never been translated into English where there's like a paragraph here or a paragraph there from like the. 12th century or the 13th century that talks about this time period that just like we don't have access to um and so digging into the turkish side of the history because the, the byzantine side is pretty what like what we have is pretty well chronicled and there's actually like contemporary uh, histories from that period that have survived so it's pretty easy to get the the byzantine view of things but i really wanted to make sure that the the seljuk and the turkish view of things um was reflected in the game so that it wasn't just sort of like one lens and it was really hard to find that stuff. And I actually didn't, after I created the prototype, the, the I had a rough sense of it, but I didn't really have a, a deep sense of it. And so it wasn't until I got into some of the sources and actually went to some of the places in Turkey, I went to a couple of museums, um, that I was able to get some additional information that helped kind of guide some of the cards for the Seljuks um, and, and more re reflect some of their doctrine or political um, things going on. Um, or the people and like where they would be um, like located on the map versus where I had them and when they came into the game versus, you know, if they start the game in a specific scenario and stuff like that. Um, so I would say that like the understanding of the Seljuk side of the history is the thing that has changed the most. Um, but I'm still, I mean, I'm still uncovering stuff in like just the most obscure corners as I read everything I can, even just as recently as a, as a month ago. There was a thread on Board Game Geek where someone, uh, I think he's from Greece, but he um, and he brought up the fact that like some of the iconography could, there, some of the stuff could be improved because we do have some historical uh, records of some of this stuff that came shortly after this period, and I, I had no idea about. And so that was very helpful in us revising some of the artwork. Um, and I think that's been where a lot of changes happen is is sort of the artwork and making sure that we're as close close to as humanly possible, or at least as believable as possible to to the history. Um, the problem is, unlike Western Europe, Byzantium didn't have any sort of heraldry uh, in the way that we think of like knights and Middle Ages in, in, in Western Europe. Um, that didn't come until Constantinople fell to the Latins in like 1204. So, you know, all we have to go on are like some sketches in like a 13th century history. And uh, you find that a lot of it is very abstract um, and hard to uh, hard to see. And we have no idea if the Seljuks used any sort of visual like military language. I mean, I'm sure that they did in even in terms of just like, you know, organizing troops and stuff. But like there's no record of it. And so all of that stuff had to be created as from scratch, essentially using some historical evidence of things um, and using some common symbols that you see pop up through Byzantium over the centuries that would have been around. Um, so that was, I think, the, the biggest challenge and the part that's changed the most is just sort of the visual language of the game um, and making sure that it is as believable and historically accurate as possible while at the same time, you know, we have to fill in some gaps where we just have no knowledge, where nobody has any knowledge. Yeah. So you, you mentioned some of the sources um, and, and some of those Turkish sources that had never really been translated. 
did you find some translations? Did you go commission some translations? Did you learn Turkish? Like what, what did you end up doing here? <laughs> I know, I know a few words in Turkish from being there for 10 days. Um, but it's like, you know, I can say the color green and the color black and exit, um, for using the Metro and stuff. Um, no. So what I ended up, uh, so a couple, a couple ways. So first of all, I discovered a, a professor at the university of Edinburgh, um, named ACS Peacock, um, who essentially is, uh, an amazing, um, scholar of Turkish history. Um, and he's published some books and I picked up a couple of his books. Um, early, early Seljuk history, sort of 10th and 11th century is sparse anyways. Um, but he, he has gone through a lot of the Turkish and Arab, uh, sources, um, from near that time period and kind of written about them. So he was an amazing, uh, amazing resource for, just some of that knowledge and, and personages that I just, you know, there are holes for. Um, so I highly recommend him if you're into any sort of Turkish history. He's got, he's written many books and he's very well traveled and knowledgeable about it. Um, mostly sort of in the, in the late Seljuk period all the way through to the Ottomans, but um, there's still some stuff to be gleaned from the early uh, Seljuk period. And then um, on top of that, there's a lot of great uh, folks in the Levy and Campaign Discord community um, who vol- have volunteered to help out. So um, there were several Greek speakers in the community who ha- looked over the map and all of the uh, place names and some of the Greek sources that I had found to let me know what they said. But there was also um, so much of the early Seljuk stuff was written in Arabic because it was, you know, the, the, even though the Turks and the Sultan were technically the the power in um, Baghdad and the in the uh, Abbasid Caliphate at that time, a lot of the histories were written in Arab because the Arab scholars and the court were the ones who wrote it and Seljuks didn't really have a writing system at that point that we know about. Um, so, so a lot of it was in Arabic. And so, um, there were some folks in the community who were from the middle East. Uh, uh, there's a guy named Rayed who's been, uh, he's also designing, uh, working on a design for living campaign, but he was super helpful. He picked around and threw some different Arab sources for me, um, and helped to get me some information that I needed. Um, so it was a really, truly like collaborative, uh, effort there, which I really love about the community. Everyone's willing to help each other out and point each other towards different sources and stuff like that. Um, so I've been able to glean, some stuff from just kind of random spots, basically, um, between books and between those people. And and I have a friend who's from Istanbul, um, who her dad uh, was able to translate some Turkish stuff for me. And then obviously going to Turkey, um, I went to um, uh, Kayseri, which is in um, Cappadocia, central Turkey. And in it's on the map in my game. And it was previously known as Kaiserea um, in the Roman, in ancient Roman times, uh, or imperial Roman times. And there's a museum there called the Seljuk Civilization Museum that's all about sort of Seljuk history. And so I went there and I was able to just take a lot of photos and um, they have some English translations of the exhibit. So I was able to glean a lot from that as well. Um, if you have the opportunity, I would say like if you're designing a game about history and you have the opportunity to go to the place where the history happened, um, it is so valuable to be able to do that. Even if all you do is go to specific locations and look at them and like take them in personally, it adds so much to sort of like the conception in your mind of what you're trying to get across in a design. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's definitely true if particularly battles, not necessarily operational ones. I mean, although it's, it's true of the operational ones, particularly battles, like if you have the opportunity to walk the battle field go do it and why wouldn't you so yeah 100 percent. that's definitely true um, and that's and and i think that is actually an interesting point too where like research for a battle game is so much more it's so much easier than research for like an operational level game with a battle game you're looking at like a day maybe multiple days maybe a week but like it's in a very enclosed space and enclosed period of time and like the details are probably recorded like in a finite number of places versus like with loving campaign some of the design challenge of like trying to figure out okay operationally what was happening 
in this time period, like from one battle to another, even, or in my game, four years, right? Like I, I had to cover four years of history um, and make sure that a, it played accurately so that wild things weren't happening historically, but also B make sure there's enough decision points for players that they feel like they have an impact on the way the game turns out, which is like, it's such a crazy fine line to walk. And that's going to be true of any historical game, but particularly when you're talking about operational uh, games and systems. And I think one of the reasons why I think levying campaign is so genius is that it's able to capture all of this stuff. But when you're designing that, like what I ended up doing was I essentially ended up creating a timeline of like every single historical source we have all the major events that they mentioned when they happened supposedly. And then I put that into a timeline to see like, okay, this means I need to design like a road from place A to place B or, you know, this history mentions a place that I can't find anywhere else. Does it have a different name in the modern era? And so then you have to go down that rabbit hole. And so, so many man hours were spent making sure that the map was correct. So that the operational maneuver that you're in decisions that players are making, like reflect the history or could reflect the history. And like, you got a sense that this is what actually happened when you, like if you played the game and enjoyed it, then wanted to read about the history. So like, that is something that I did not expect coming in as a designer. And I have so much more respect for anyone who designs historical games, especially those people who are able to design historical games in different eras and different systems is uh is this where we cue the istanbul not constantinople song <laughs> I, yeah <laughs> exactly places changing names <laughs> oh no one knows but the turks right is that how it goes right yeah, yeah exactly it's nobody's business but the turks that's so. right yeah that's right <laughs> so well, th- thankfully constantinople lasted for another what uh 400 years after my game under byzantine control Flip that around in terms of something that has largely survived intact from your original design to where you got today. What's something that whether you just got lucky or you happen to do all that research up front, what's something that you kind of nailed it the, the first time through and has, has largely remained intact as you went through the uh, the, the design and refinement process? Yeah, well, so I think that the, the, the concept of the asymmetry and how it's executed, I think, has been the same since day one and which has been like, I can't believe that that happened. <laughs> I thought for sure that there'd be like huge balance changes and mechanical changes I need to make to that, but it's been just small tweaks here and there over the course of playtesting um, that's let that asymmetry continue. Um, I think the other one too, and I haven't talked about it yet, but sort of the way that the Roman military or the Byzantine military was structured was you had um, these sort of regional um, like levies uh, that would be assigned to a geographic area. And that was like, you know, they were primarily for defense um, and you know, the, the emperor, you know, if he was assembling an army could call them into the army as he marched through and they would go off and march on campaign. But primarily their function was to protect the, the cities and towns in their sort of like assigned region. And there was like a, a command, a local commander who had command of them. And it was, this was really important to like Byzantine military doctrine and, and force makeup and stuff like that. And so I knew I wanted to have it reflected in the game. Um, they're called themes, by the way. So like if you've ever heard the term Byzantine themes, that's what that means. A theme is a, a geographic area and the themata uh, or temata are uh, the troops that were assigned to those themes. Um, so that's in the game. And so what that means is like, you know, you're familiar with the service markers in Levian campaign, which live on Lord Mats. And those are the vassals that you can muster and call forth and build up your army's troops. Right. Well, there's also service markers on the map in this game in the in the uh, Byzantine Empire. And the Roman emperor, when he moves through, can pick up those units. So normally you can't get new units outside of the muster phase. And then you're sort of locked into your force makeup for the campaigning. Well, in this game, when the Roman emperor moves through an area, he is able to conscript those those territorial troops into his army if he wants. 
um, and take them on campaign for the year. And at the end of the year, or at the end of the season, excuse me, um, he has got to pay for them because they're sort of operating outside their normal limits. Um, and it costs money to have all those extra troops and so forth. But the other thing is that those those units that are existing on the map all the time, those, those service markers, can also be used defensively. So they can be used to uh, defend against ravage attempts by the Seljuks. So this is the first living campaign game, uh, or one of the first, where when you do a ravage, um, unlike it in Nevsky, where it's just kind of automatic and it happens, um, you have the opportunity to, to expend some of your regional troops to try and block the ravage from happening. And there's sort of a cat and mouse that happens there with trying to make sure the Seljuk player doesn't achieve their, their ravaging goal for the year. And you can also use those service markers to be your garrisons um, when you come under siege by Seljuk armies. Um, but the thing is, is that all of these service markers, when they're eliminated, whether it's in battle, whether it's in a siege, or, or, or they fail to stop a raid, they're permanently eliminated from the game. So they're kind of like this finite resource that the, the Roman player has to um, protect the Empire, but they over the course of a longer term game, they start to go away and gradually erode, which is what has happened historically. And I had kind of concepted out that mechanic pretty early from, on the paper design that I was doing. Um, and once I started putting it into practice, it was I was really, really thrilled to see that it worked actually very seamlessly. Um, and that has been around since the beginning as well. That sort of idea that there are these like garrisons that the Romans have, and they're these border frontier troops that are sort of the first line of defense and they know they're going to lose a bunch of them over the course of the game. It's how do they manage those losses to, you know, make sure that they achieve the defensive objectives they have set for them. So, um, it was, it's pretty nice that that, that has sort of maintained over the course of the life of the, of the designing and is sort of a, a key feature of the gameplay. So one more question about the actual design work that you did. This is, this is one that uh, is, has always been something that I've been particularly interested in is that, and this definitely applies much more in the, the event driven CDGs, but, but probably applies with you as well. And that is when you see the CDGs, there's a lot of events that happen in there that, that it's basically, this was the event. And so either the event happens or it doesn't, but it's very rare that you ever see an event in there that plausibly could have happened, but didn't. Uh, this was something that we actually asked on social media a couple months ago, I think it was now. And and Jason Matthews actually weighed in with a couple of Twilight Struggle event cards that they played around with that sort of these were some events that that we threw out there as possibilities. And we ended up not using them, but they were all things that were under very real discussion at certain points in history. One of them was Israel joins NATO. And and as we're recording this, it's very much topical in the news because of the conflict going on right now with uh, with with Israel and Hamas. That's not why I bring that one up. That's just one of the cards I happen to remember. Uh, wh- what, if any, are some of the historical events or, or ahistorical events that could have happened but didn't that might have a particular pathway or special appearance in Seljuk? I, so first of all, I love this question so much, and I, I think it's so interesting um, because it comes back to the idea of like you want if you're, when you're designing a historical game, you don't want it to just be completely scripted because otherwise, what's the point? You want players to feel like they have the ability to make decisions differently than happened in history. Um, and yeah, you're, you're right on. So in the game, obviously, there are event cards and capabilities that you can draft. And even from the beginning, I knew partly because we don't we have some holes in the historical record um, in terms of like why why certain things actually happen the way they did but also because i love the idea that like when you play a game you could have something happen different than history that sort of changes the game state or becomes a dynamic um force in sort of what you understand as the history um and so we do have that in seljuk i was conscious that there are some possible um either counterfactuals or 
events that did historically happen, but like the players either have control of when they happen in a different way. So like they might, ha- they might choose to have, make them happen earlier or um, make them not happen at all, or they happen randomly, but at different times than they did historically. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So one is, um, uh, one is the siege of Bari in Italy. So the city of Bari is on the Adriatic coast in, in Italy. Um, that was the last so everyone knows that, well, not everyone, but most people know that Justinian attempted to reconquer the Western Roman Empire in the 6th century. Um, he succeeded marginally, but the Eastern Romans, Byzantium, held on to holdings in Italy for a long, long time. And at this, in this period, 400 years later, their last, the last holding they had in Italy as part of that reconquest was the city of Bari in Italy, which was part of the Byzantine Empire. Well, in 1070, the Normans come rolling in and um, they put the city under siege and uh, the Byzantines are too busy fighting the Seljuks um, to really spare any manpower. Um, And the siege, after I think two or three years, ends up being a a Norman victory. They end up taking the city and that's the last time that uh, Byzantium would have any sort of influence in in Italy. Um, That event is in the game um, and that event causes some of those what I was talking about, those um, thematic troops, the the service markers on the map, to go away when the Siege of Bari happens. Because presumably, well, we know historically the emperor did send some troops to reinforce the siege to hopefully hang on, and he didn't. Um, and so that event um, it can happen, it will happen randomly, it can happen at any time in the game, not necessarily in 1070 or 1071 when it historically happened. Um, and that could potentially affect the way that you defend certain parts of the map. Um, so that's one example. Another example would be something like, um, so without getting into the complex politics of it, um, the city of Aleppo at this period was kind of like playing all sides against each other. They, there was this family of, of emirs in Aleppo, uh, of Muslim emirs, who wanted to stay independent of any sort of foreign influence. And they uh, fought like these several civil wars um, over the course of like 50, 60 years. So like, who, which part of the family would control Aleppo? Um, but it is very pivotal because the Seljuks, historically, the Seljuks' goal was to take the city of Aleppo and fold it into the the um, Sunni Muslim world uh, as a show of power and dominance against the Shia Muslims in Egypt. And, and the, the, um, the Fatimids in Egypt, the Shia Muslims, they wanted to keep it independent because it acted as a buffer state between um, the, the uh, Turks and themselves. And caught in the middle of this is is Byzantium. And so there are these civil wars in Aleppo where the city changed sides. And then the Turks decided that they were going to try and siege Aleppo. And actually the last thing that happened before uh, the Battle of Manzikert was that the Sultan was actually sieging Aleppo. And then when he found out that the Roman army was moving east, he packed up all his troops and left and went to go confront um, the emperor at, at Manzikert. And that's how the battle ended up unfolding. Um, but that, that sort of complex politics of Aleppo and who won and what and how they were trying to play sides against each other. And then sometimes they were allied to the, the Byzantines. Sometimes they were allied to the Fatimids. Sometimes they would tell the the uh, the Sultan, "Yes, we'll convert to Sunni Islam, but we want to maintain our independence." All of that is caught up in some uh, a series of events in the game that can happen. So the status of Aleppo can change when certain events come out. Part of it can be that um, the 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 emirs of Aleppo say, "Hey." We don't want anything to do with anyone. We're going to be independent. And that changes who is an enemy to that space and who can take it over. And when that event comes out, the Seljuks can then, if they want, try and conquer Aleppo, which is very hard. It's the hardest city to take in the game. But if they do and they hold it through winter, they win the game automatically. Um, but while it is in that state, the, there's events that can cause the um, the city of Aleppo to go over to the Roman side, which it did not do historically. Um, they had sort of a tentative alliance, um, but they weren't like, you know, military allies or anything like that. But I sort of am presenting the idea that like, what if um, the emirs of Aleppo had decided, okay, we're really afraid of the Sultan. We want to be you know, allied to the Byzantine Empire right now to help protect our interests. 
um, because they did actually make a call for that, like sort of 10 years after the game is over. Um, and so I said, well, what if they had done that earlier? And so that's another thing that can sometimes happen in the game is that Aleppo decides to go over and align itself more closely with the Byzantines. And that makes it a huge worth a huge amount of points for the Byzantine player that they just kind of they don't have to work very hard to get. They just kind of have to like engineer the right conditions for those events to happen. Um, and so I love the idea that there can be counterfactuals um, about who does what. There's there's cards about certain lords being assassinated that historically were, but you know the players can make it so that the assassination is less likely to happen. Um, and so yeah, I, I love the idea that like a player input into a historical model can achieve non-historical results that are believable and plausible based on what we know about the history. Yeah, because I think you know you 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 mentioned one one facet of it, which is the events still happen; they just happen in a different order. To me, there's only so much that actually changes there. But when when you have significantly different events that historically did not happen but were plausible and could have happened, uh, those are the ones that that I kind of get interested in. Those are, those are the ones that that I would be curious to see uh, what comes up with for for those. So. Um, <laughs> I think that would make, you know, I think that would actually make a great sort of like a panel somewhere or even a podcast episode would be like getting a bunch of designers together, talking about some of the like counterfactual elements to their games that they either implemented or didn't implement and why and like why how they were thinking about the history of the game they were designing. I think that'd be super fascinating. Well, we've uh, we've got most of this season already planned and sort of laid out. However, uh, we may bring you back next season to talk about that one again. <laughs> well, as you, so, as you can tell, I, I could go on forever. <laughs> not the worst thing. Until somebody uh, like this guy has to co- go back and edit all this together at some point. As we do wrap this up, because I, I, I don't want to infringe on uh, too much of your time, but I, I do appreciate you sticking around with us for, for over an hour here talking about uh, talking about your baby. So, I mean, it's, it's usually not hard to get designers to talk about their own games. So uh, <laughs> what, what, what should we have asked you if we don't want to ask you? Oh boy. Um, what should you have asked me? Um, ooh, that's, that's a tough one. Um, you know, maybe um, what was, was Romano Stylianus a good Roman emperor maybe about the game or um, I don't know. I, like, I, I feel like, uh, I put myself through like a college level, like middle Byzantine history course. So like the things, the things that I get caught up on when people ask me are things that have to do with like Orthodox religion. Cause like that, while it was important to the Byzantines, it's kind of beyond the scope of the game. Um, or, uh, when am I going to get around to playing, um, Almoravid and Plantagenet? That'd be a good one that I wouldn't have an answer for. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not doing weekend at the warehouse? Not this year. I'm actually, so I'm going to SD HisCon. Um, I'll be there at the beginning of November with Seljuk doing some demos, uh, mainly to see some friends um, and see all the other folks in Wargaming uh, that I haven't seen for a year. Um, I just couldn't make it out this year, but I'm thinking about going to Weekend at the Warehouse in the spring, in April, when they do it again. We'll see how far along we are with Seljuk. I'm hoping at that point, everything will be locked down and it will be hopefully in production and, um, you know, be able to show sort of the quote unquote final uh, version through the prototype. We'll see how so it goes. With, with that in mind, any chance we can get you to show up at Origins in the summer of 2024 and bring Seljuk with you? I would love to. I've actually wanted to go to Origins for a long time. And I, you know, like it's, it's hard to justify sometimes when you live really far away, like Ohio is kind of a, a, a hump for me, but if I have a game that I've just made and released, I want to take it everywhere. Like I would love to do like a world tour with it and do demos like in cafes and wherever. <laughs> so I'm totally in to come to origins with Seljuk if it's out by then. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if you haven't heard it's because, you know, we just haven't quite done just enough PR on it yet, but, uh, the Wargaming headquarters that it's, it'll be the 10th anniversary of us having 
started the Wargaming HQ at Origins. It, it won't be the 10th iteration of it because we lost the COVID year in there. So it, it's the ninth time we've done it, but it'll be the 10th anniversary. And we're planning, it looks like we're going to be doubling the floor space that we had from last year based on the number of people that are, are interested in the number of, of events that we're going to need tables for. And, and we've even got a couple of publishers that are wanting to reach out and work with us on on just sort of showing off things that aren't even ready to go to press yet, but wanting to start building some buzz for it. So if you've got something that's actually ready to go and Enterprise Games can be stocking it as GMT's official rep there, you know, play with the designer attracts plenty of people. We had a bunch of that this past year with uh, with Tori there with Votes for Women and David Thompson there with, you know, his 1,800 different games. Uh, <laughs> not 18XX games. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Although it's only a matter of time, I feel like, for David Thompson to design an 18xx game, right? That yeah, probably. Um <laughs> but no, he he was he had Undaunted Battle for Britain, which was was brand new. Um so you know we excellent had, game. Uh, we, we actually we got a picture from from uh from Origins that's David Thompson, Jason Matthews, Alex Knight, and Tim Densham all standing around having a conversation. We're like, well, there's some design horsepower. Yeah, it sounds like a magazine cover. <laughs> yeah, I know. And uh and these guys were just sort of casually having a conversation around the Wargame HQ. So so yeah, if uh if if you if you're willing to show up, we're willing to give you a table to put it on and uh and and throw you in the program and let you show off uh show off your baby and uh and maybe we can even sneak in a war college talk for you for an hour about the research behind it all so yeah i would love to i, I would absolutely love to do that i could uh I, i've taken some pictures of all the books that have informed the game and posted on social media and there's a lot to talk about there so yeah either either way i would love to go to origins um and and you know demo the game even if, if it's without the game i'd love to go to origins as well so and, and you don't have to cross the pacific to do it you, you <laughs> that's right that's right you know <laughs> <laughs> that's right so well cool um hey look man i i really appreciate you being able to spend the time with us here on the podcast uh, definitely appreciate the audience sticking through all of this. And uh, and so Seljuk is on P500 as we are recording this, uh, still taking some orders. Uh, but I think it's it's got its spot in the production pipeline at this point, if I'm not mistaken. Like we we kind of have the timeline of when this is expected to show up, right? Well, it's, kinda, it's still a little bit nebulous. Um we were in the final, like we're in the last stages of the art uh, happening and the last like final balance play testing. Um, oh, and as right. soon as that is done, then I think then it would officially move to, uh, you know, once GMT looks everything over, that it would officially move to production. But we're, we're just there. We're like right on the cusp. So it shouldn't be too much longer before uh, that news gets, uh, the status gets upgraded to that. But we're close. Okay. Yeah. I, I knew it was on P500. I, I think I was giving you a little more credit for being further down the line than you actually were. But I, I, I thought you were. And it wasn't just wishful thinking. I legitimately thought that's where you are yeah we're close i mean we might have, yeah we're right on the edge like i said so like uh yeah i mean i hope i hope that next month at this time we can say something close to that yeah we'll uh we'll be announcing it in tuesday newsday that hey it's uh you know it's it's off and running so um cool well listen uh it's it's still a little earlier where you are so you have time to go catch a hockey game or two on uh <laughs> on on opening night day one here um, that's right I'm so excited my, my guys don't play until tomorrow and then <laughs> It's you, you'll appreciate this because you're a hockey fan. So the Carolina Hurricanes, because of the timing of the state fair and the fact that the arena shares parking lots with the fairgrounds, they always get in one home game right before the state fair starts and then immediately take off on like a four game road trip, five game road trip because they have to. They have to leave town because they can't use the arena parking lots with the state fair going on. Um, so so this happens every season. We get one home game and then people disappear <laughs> for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I do know that your team is coming to play my team, uh, I think, on Saturday. So 
Exactly. I'm looking forward to rubbing that in your face when we win. It's uh, it's usually the West Coast swing yep. because if you're going to take off for 10 days, you might as well go get the furthest destination <laughs> out of the way yep. and get them over with. Um, but yeah, th- this happens every year. We uh, we get a home game and then we get to stay up late and watch them play for, for two weeks before they come home again. So <laughs> it, it's just always, you know, unless there's something weird, like it's, you know, one of the lockout years or something wacky like that. Like this, yeah. this is how every season starts for us and uh, and happens all the time. So, but cool. Uh, enjoy your hockey game tonight and, uh, or tomorrow you guys playing tonight, tomorrow, tomorrow. tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did, ditto here. And, uh, it, by the time the audience is listening to this, like, you know, <laughs> four games under their belt, you know, with, with, with the, the lag for the recording and, uh, and cool. Looking forward to having you back after it's been released, after you've got the sequel or the expansion designed and ready to go. And, uh, <laughs> And, and maybe looking forward to seeing you at, at, at Origins next summer. We're gonna now that you've left the door open, we're gonna pressure you into it. That's well, I, I it would be that would be the best peer pressure I could possibly receive. I'd be lean into it really hard. Excellent. All right, uh, audience, thank you very much for sticking with us. We're we're closing up on uh, almost halfway through season eleven here. Uh, it does seem to be flying by. Trust me, it is it is flying by as the host as well. Uh, the editing, not so much, but the the hosting. This is this is a ton of fun, and time really does fly when you're having fun. So, uh, audience, we appreciate you being here, and uh, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of Mentioning Dispatches. <laughs>